Well, good morning. It's a delight to be with you today. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin to hear from the Word of God? Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes that would see Jesus today. And you would give us ears that would hear the voice of your Spirit speaking to us. And we pray that you give us hearts that would be soft, able to receive your Word. That we would not only be challenged, but that we would be changed and conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, it's an honor to be here today. Thank you, Dr. Tennant. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Winfield. And by the way, Winfield and I are indeed wearing the same tweed blazer today. Uh, we have never met before in person, but we've exchanged a lot of you know, phone calls and messages over social media, remarking how similar our journeys have been, and then here we meet in the flesh and we're wearing the same blazer, so tweed twinning, I think. Uh, but it's great to be here, and it's especially, it's especially fun to be here uh, with my good friend Jason Jackson, who some of you will know. Uh, Jason spent eight years here at Asbury, first as a student uh, and then as a teaching fellow. So he said some might still be here that lament his Hebrew classes. Um, but Jason and I actually went to college together, and uh, he was a groomsman in our wedding and then now works as one of the pastors at our church in Colorado Springs. So let me just tell you, just a little, by way of introduction, a little bit about my journey and about my story. Uh, I grew up in Malaysia, and as I like to remind people, it's about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back around the world being round and whatnot. And, uh, and uh, my, my father was raised in a Hindu family. My mother grew up in an Anglican family. In fact, my mother, I think, was maybe the third generation uh, Anglican and, and the beneficiary of good uh, missionaries from England. And, and uh, when they began dating at the University of Singapore, she basically told my dad, she said, look, I'm not marrying a Hindu. I need to marry a Christian. And so he converted. Uh, it's the most, uh, it, I mean, really, it's the most successful missionary dating story ever, and we don't recommend this, of course. <laughs> Um, but it worked in their case. And so they, they were members of St. Paul's Anglican Church in outside Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia. And then, uh, some time into that, they began to have a, a, a dramatic sort of experience that they would describe as a born-again experience where they began to become aware of what it meant to follow Jesus. And so a friend invited them to this Bible study that was being led by a Baptist pastor. And so they began to sneak off during the week to this Baptist Bible study. And then some years after that, individually, uh, my parents encountered a, a movement that was sweeping the globe, um, known now, we, we refer to it now as the charismatic renewal. And so they came to understand that there's more to the Holy Spirit than uh, maybe they had at first thought. And so they tried to introduce a, a charismatic prayer service in their Anglican church, and that lasted not very long. And, uh, and eventually they, they, they left and, uh, and were members of a, a non-denominational church, a little bit more of a Pentecostal flavor. And that's the church that I have memories in. I mean, I was a little child in the Anglican church, and I remember going to some of the services there. But by the time I was eight years old, uh, my sister was 11, we moved on to this a non-denominational church. So you can see that from an early age, I'm sort of an ecclesiastical muddle, uh, a mix of, all, of, of many different streams, or you might say the beneficiary of it, uh, being enriched by the different traditions. And when I was 10, our family moved from Malaysia uh, to Portland, Oregon. My parents went to a Bible school uh, out there, and my sister and I went to this private Christian school that was connected to the church. And then we, we lived there for three years, and then we moved back to Malaysia. I finished up my high school years with kind of an American homeschool extension of this uh, school in Portland. 
and, but knowing that I was gonna come back to the States to go to college. And so when I did, it was January of 1996 that I arrived on the campus of Oral Roberts University uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now I know that uh, conjures up or provokes uh, responses that are all across the spectrum. Uh, I, I, I told you I have been enriched by many, many streams of the body of Christ. Uh, I definitely encountered some, some funny things there, but also was blessed by an amazing faculty. I was a theology, theological historical studies undergrad. Uh, met great friends like Jason. I also met my wife there, so I'm very thankful for those years. They were good years uh, for, for us on many, many levels. Uh, and then from there, moved on to, to New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and I've been at New Life for 17 years now, which is getting to be, you know, a longish time uh, to be at one church. And the church itself has gone through a, a number of challenges, and I'll share a bit about that this morning. But somewhere along the way, about three years ago, I also completed uh, an ordination process with uh, what is now the ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America. And they recommissioned me, so to speak, back uh, into my, my position of ministry at New Life. And they said, keep serving at New Life, I don't know, an undercover priest or something like that. <laughs> so so I, I said to someone this morning, my time here at Asbury, I've not only felt uh, welcome, but I felt at home because I feel the convergence of uh, many different streams. And uh, there is a beauty in the diversity. If there's also a sadness in the disunity, there's also a beauty in the diversity of the body of Christ. And when we are able to hold uh, some of these traditions and streams together, we can be better for it. But all, through all of this, it has raised for me the question of, what it means to be the church. What does it mean for us to actually be the people of God gathered together? And, and it particularly became uh, a question that was on the forefront of my mind in late 2006, early 2007, because the founding pastor at New Life Church went, uh, went through a very public um, moral failure. And it was especially public because at the time he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And so there was a lot of attention on this, and in the wake of, of, of something like that, you know, you, you eventually take the focus off of the individual and their actions, and you start, the Holy Spirit has a way of turning the spotlight on you, and to say, you know, you start praying things like, search my heart, oh God, and what is going on with me? And I began to, to wrestle through questions like, what does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be the church? What, how do we understand our life in the world as the people of God? And one of the things that happened in those years, in, in, early to, or in late 2009, we began a service on Sunday evenings that uh, began, became kind of a laboratory to test out some of these things. And we began to do, at this service, weekly communion. And we began to say the Nicene Creed, and we began to introduce prayers of confession. And you have to do this very carefully with evangelicals. So our prayers of confession were first Psalm 51, because who can argue about the Bible, you know? And then you gradually, it's a slippery slope from there, and you get to the Book of Common Prayer before you know it. And, uh, and so this is, this is what we did uh, in, in the Sunday evening service. And I began to realize that even though there are various moments, various places of encounter within the gathered worship service, there was something about the table that had a way of pushing a person off center, pushing a, displacing an individual and their own gifts off center 
from the service. And so where a worship team, my early years at, at New Life, where I was a, a worship leader there and a songwriter there, and, and, and I got to be part of many wonderful projects that we did together. But I recognize that even in the time of musical worship, uh, we've all experienced it, maybe not so much here, but when, when the worship team isn't quite there, and they're actually creating more obstacles to your, uh, your worship than they are facilitating it, right? And we've all experienced a sermon, maybe you're experiencing it right now, where the preacher becomes more of a barrier to your hearing from God rather than an aid in hearing from God. But there's something about the table where we, like John the Baptist, kind of move out of the way and say, I must decrease so that he might increase and behold the Lamb of God. And we began to realize in our very low church, non-denominational, evangelical, charismatic, whatever uh, tradition that we were realizing, look, we can say that it's all about Jesus, but if we don't build something into our weekly rhythms that actually takes a person out of the picture and says Jesus is truly the center, uh, then what are we really forming people in? And so we began to recognize that the table is the centerpiece, it became the centerpiece of our worship, but it, it became more than that. The table, we began to recognize, is not only the centerpiece of Christian worship, but it's actually paradigmatic for the life of the church. Now I figure I can get away with a word like paradigmatic at a seminary, right? This is not normal Sunday morning English, but we can say that here. That the table becomes not only the centerpiece, but it becomes the very paradigm for understanding the life of the church. And here's what I want us to reflect on this morning in the moments that we have together. There are three particular stories in Luke's gospel where Jesus is at table and he does something. Jesus is the host at a table. There's many table stories in Luke. Luke has this affinity for, for Jesus and me, telling stories about Jesus and meals. But there are three particular moments where Jesus is the host at a table. And each time he does this, the, the same thing with bread. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And I want us to just reflect this morning on those three words, blessed, broken, and given. And I wonder what it would look like for us to understand the life of the church in those three movements. To think about our life together as the people of God, as a people who have been blessed, who are being broken, and who are being given for the life of the world. And so the first word, blessed. What does it mean to say that we are blessed? Now, I've already told you that I lived in Tulsa for a few years, so I heard uh, very interesting definitions of what it meant to be blessed uh, from various uh, uh, streams around there that said, oh, to be blessed is to basically to have life work out. It's, it's a Christian way of describing the American dream, but we know, of course, that this can't be it. It can't be the way that we understand blessed, and Luke's gospel in particular debunks that notion when Luke records Jesus' Beatitudes. Because Luke doesn't give us spiritual beatitudes like Matthew does. He simply says, blessed are the poor, and blessed are you who hunger now. And so all of a sudden, we're left with having to recalibrate our definition of what it means to be blessed. And so by the time we get to these table moments where Jesus is taking bread and blessing it, we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to be blessed? And the central story here, Luke 22, says Jesus after taking the bread and giving thanks. This is an interesting clue where Matthew's gospel records this very motion as the act of blessing, Luke says specifically Jesus is giving thanks for the bread. And I, I think it wouldn't be far off to guess that the blessing, the thanksgiving prayer that Jesus offered would have been the classic Jewish prayer of blessing for uh, recognizing God as the king of the universe and the giver of bread. 
And so there's something about blessing that involves giving thanks to the creator and the king of creation for the very gift that we're about to enjoy and partake in. The Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann says, blessing is really about revealing the true nature of a thing. And he describes holy water and he says, maybe it's not so much that the water becomes something different, but in the act of blessing, we recognize its true nature and its true destiny. You might even say that blessing restores a thing to its proper function, to be a carrier of the glory of God. And maybe now we're closer to what the Hebrew prophets said when they said the whole earth is full of his glory. That at its best, creation was made to be a container of the glory of God. And so maybe to be blessed is actually to be returned to our true identity. To be blessed is to be returned to our true identity. That in those moments when we say, no, 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 my life can't really be significant. No, no, God doesn't really mean to use what I have because it's too common or it's too ordinary. It's just, after all, bread. I mean, think about it. Is there anything more ordinary than bread? This isn't Jesus taking some exotic dish that's prepared with a delicate combination of spices. It's just bread. And having grown up in Asia, there's a particular kind of bread in Malaysia that is just amazing. It's called roti. It's even better than naan bread, you know. And, 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 but as I've thought about it, every culture, I think, I would wager, every culture has some version of this staple thing, bread-like substance, if not bread itself, right? A very basic thing that you just pair with anything else, whatever meat, whatever sauce, whatever gravy. We, we, we also add this thing, bread. It's only now in America that we've somehow ruined bread, and so we're now we're all gluten-free and all of this stuff. You know? <laughs> but prior to that, you know, bread was the staple. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I, in my house, we have two who really can't handle it, so I'm, I'm, I mean that. Uh, anyway. <laughs> But I think there's something to this that Jesus is taking bread and blessing it. And that maybe part of being blessed is being returned to our true identity because God loves to hide his glory inside the ordinary. God loves to hide his glory inside the ordinary stuff of life. And Paul says it in Ephesians 1. He says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This is a clue at how the gospel returns us to our true identity. This is a clue about how the gospel returns us to our, our, our true identity as children of God, meant to reveal the Father, made in his image. And so there isn't anything that is too ordinary to be blessed. God loves to hide his glory inside the ordinary. And then the second word, broken. Uh, broken can be an interesting word because even the way we use it casually in conversation, broken uh, immediately has a negative con connotation to it. It's, oh, well, that's, that's broken. Or very simply, something that stopped working is broken, right? Uh, once I posted on, on Facebook that I had a wheelbarrow that had a flat tire and I no longer needed it, and I was, in my generous heart, was offering it to give it away, you know? And, uh, and this friend from church who was familiar with our usage of th these words, blessed, broken, given, made the joke, and he says, ah, your wheelbarrow, blessed, broken, 
now given, you know? And, and so we, th we, th we think of this word broken as indicating that something is no longer useful. It's no longer functioning. But I want to suggest to you that actually the brokenness that God accomplishes in our lives is the very opposite of that. It's not when a thing breaks down and ceases to function, but actually opens the opening of our lives up to one another. Listen to the story in Luke 24. Familiar passage, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're walking with Jesus, and Jesus, you know, I don't know if he's playing dumb or what exactly he's doing, but they, they ask him, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened? And, and then it says, when they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he were going on ahead. Really fun to imagine Jesus doing that, you know. Well, they urged him saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them and he took his seat at the table with them. Now listen to this. This is curious to me. Because here they are doing something charitable, doing an act of hospitality, saying, okay, here's this stranger. He's a little bit muddled. He doesn't quite know what's going on. Let's invite him in. Let's have him stay. And Jesus is a guest now, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think that in Jewish tradition, a guest usually gives the blessing. I think that's typically the job of the host. But you see, Jesus, when he is the guest, eventually becomes the host. And here's Jesus being the recipient of their hospitality. Come on in. And Jesus says, thanks, I'll take it from here. And it says, Jesus took his seat at the table and he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire or the proper translation, were not our hearts strangely warmed when he spoke to us <laughs> along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us. And here all of a sudden, you have these disillusioned, disappointed disciples who have not yet recognized the risen Christ. They don't yet have the hope that comes from the resurrected Jesus. And in the midst of their disillusionment, in the midst of their disappointment, they take the risk of hospitality. And what happens? Because of that opening up of their home, the opening up of their lives, all of a sudden, the grace of God comes rushing in. And their eyes are opened, and their hearts are warm. See, here's what I think. I think to be broken is actually to be opened up to the grace of God through others. To be broken is to be opened up to the grace of God in others. So often we think that, oh, listen, I, I, I'm, it's not that I'm too ordinary, it's that I'm too messed up. Too much has happened. I've experienced too much pain, too much disillusionment, too much, there are too many scars in my heart that I couldn't possibly be a, a vehicle for God to uh, arrive in other people's lives. And yet, here are these disciples in the midst of their disillusionment and disappointment, eyes clouded, yet they take the small little risk of hospitality and somehow, through their brokenness, God actually meets them with his grace. God meets them with his grace. And so to be broken is actually to be opened up to the grace of God in others. See, for Christians, vulnerability is not the end game. I know there's, it's very popular in our culture to, to talk about vulnerability, authenticity, and it sort of becomes an end in itself. Hey, man, just being real. Hashtag just saying, you know. I just got to tell you how it is. As if vulnerability were an end in itself. But in the gospel community, 
vulnerability is just the means for the grace of God to come rushing in. The point is actually to find Jesus. The point is actually to have our eyes opened to Jesus, to have our hearts lit on fire. That's the point. Not to say, okay, I'm out. New Life Church now is a church that is comprised of six congregations. Uh, Two of them are non-English speaking. We have a Spanish speaking congregation, the largest in our city. Uh, a Chinese-speaking congregation, then we have four English-speaking congregations. This is a gradual thing that has happened over the last uh, five years or so. And, um, and I lead, Jason, with me, uh, one, of our da- our, one of our congregations, the New Life Downtown Congregation, uh, while also playing a role uh, in the centralized stuff at the church uh, as a whole. But when we started our downtown congregation five years ago, we made it a point that when we were designing small groups... Uh, that rather than, than take the step and to say, okay, let's just, whoever wants to, let's just do a Bible study or a this or a that or a book study or a book group. Those are all fine. They're all wonderful. We've all, all been there. We've done all of that. But because this was a new community and at the time comprised disproportionately with people who were disillusioned with evangelicalism and who were on the fringes, the borderlands of faith, we said, you know, what if all of our groups were simply meal groups? where all that we're asking you to do is to meet and eat and pray. That's it. You don't have to be an expert in the text. You don't have to be a counselor. You don't have to go. Just you, this may be all you can manage right now. And even so, would you open your home? Even so, would you take this risk? And so as these groups began to develop, what we discovered is that there are so few moments in our contemporary culture where we actually slow down enough to sit and to face one another. And a table forces you to do that. Here we are in this kind of a room where you're all facing forward. But at a table, we're seated in a way that we are cognizant of one another's stories. And we allow people to be humble and to be vulnerable and to open up their lives to one another. And all of a sudden we discover that to be broken is to be opened up to the grace of God, meeting us through one another. Bread that is not broken cannot be shared. Bread that is not broken cannot be shared. People ask sometimes, how did New Life survive after, because, because there's the, there was the, the, the transition in leadership that happened, and then our, our new senior pastor came in in August of 2007, Brady Boyd, a man that I love and have deep respect for. But 100 days into his time, there was a gunman who opened fire on our campus and took the lives of two teenage girls and wounded others. We're just about, you know, December 9th is the 10-year anniversary of that. And so we're, we're keenly aware of the pain that even is, uh, the church in Sutherland Springs is experiencing, although at a much deeper scale for them. And so in the wake of a, a transition and a tragedy, a scandal and a shooting, the, the question has often been, how, how, does, how does a church survive that? And the answer is only truly by the grace of God. But there is a a way of being open to one another that allows that grace to flow. Bread that is not broken cannot be shared. And there are these moments, some moments are of our choosing, some moments are not of our choosing, but either way, they can become occasions for the grace of God to flow. 
and to meet one another out of our wounds and out of our journey together. And then this final word, given. The word given. If the word blessed confronts our fear that we are too ordinary and the word blessed reminds us, no, 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 God loves to do this. And the word broken confronts our objection that we're too messed up and there's too much that has gone on. Then the word given addresses our tendency to sit on the sidelines and to say, I don't really know either because I'm too ordinary or, either because, or because I'm too messed up. I, for either one, or maybe another reason altogether, we say, well, let's just keep it close. Let's play it safe. Churches, you'll find, and many of you have been in pastoral ministry know this, churches have a funny way of developing a gravitational pull that keeps everybody close. And you have to fight intentionally to spin people outwards. To remind people that our kingdom is a kingdom of sending and of going. Because church has this way of developing our own programs and our own stuff. And and before you know it, you look up 10 years in, 15 years in, and everything is about keeping the people in your orbit. Because of your programs and your stuff. And you have to find ways to say, no, 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 we're meant to be given. And so here, here's the story. It was our gospel reading this morning. I won't, I won't take time to read it again. We know this moment. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They find these loaves and the fish. He takes them. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus gives it to the disciples. Now listen. Jesus, if you're going to do the miracle of multiplication, why not also do the, 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 the miracle of personal delivery? You know, before there was Amazon Prime, (laughs) Jesus, you could have made sure that each person, boop, there's my meal, delivered right to my lap. I mean, why stop at the multiplication miracle? Because Jesus always chooses to involve us in his work. And that the miracle of multiplication does not negate our participation. And so Jesus multiplies us and he places it in the disciples' hands. And he says, now you, I told you, you give them something to eat. You said, ah, we don't have stuff. It's late, blah, blah, blah. I did the miracle. Now you join me in it. Join me. You, I told you, give them something to eat. This is one of those moments, you know, where it's very Bonhoeffer-esque, where Bonhoeffer says, you know, the one who gives the command also gives the grace to obey the command. So Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And then he does the thing that they could not do so that they can do the thing that he asked them to. Give them something to eat. Okay, I'll make it possible. Do it. The church has been placed in the world for the sake of the world. It is impossible, though, for us to truly serve and be there for the life of the world, except that Jesus makes it possible. And he takes us and he blesses us And he breaks us and he gives us out so that all can taste and see that the Lord is good. For us at New Life Downtown in particular, we found intentional ways to find places to partner. We meet at a high school uh, every Sunday. And so once a quarter or so, we'll take a serve day and invite all of our people on a Saturday to do all of these projects at the high school. For some reason, the school district approves the funds to buy supplies, but never approves the funds to contract labor. And so we just become the free contract labor. You know, we come, okay, where's the paint? Let's do it. Okay, where, let's clean the windows. Let's weed. Let's do all the stuff. And then we partnered with another organization called Kids Hope, where we mentor children, one, one person with one child, one hour a week, 
to mentor them at a, at a middle school in town. And it's come to the point where the, the principal has said, this has actually resulted in, in more engagement from the students and actually even better grades from the students. It turns out that little bit of investment. So when we think about this for us, this word even shapes our movements of our life together. Blessed is the word that we think of to describe the gathered life of the church. That every time we gather together in worship, we rehearse our blessedness in Christ. And then broken reminds us of our communal life of the church. And then given describes the missional life of the church. I said the table is paradigmatic for the life of the church. If you'd like to think of it in table language, the gathered life of the church is where we gather around Jesus' table. Communal life is where we gather around one another's tables. And then as we serve and are given, it's as if we are preparing a table for others to meet with Jesus. In Acts 2, 42, when Luke is describing in his volume 2 the life of the early church, and he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. It's very likely Luke's thinking of all of these other stories of breaking of bread that he's already told. And so then, in verse 43, it says, and awe came upon every soul. Most of what we are called to do if not all of what we're called to do, is not really possible, right? But the Holy Spirit chooses to bless our ordinary movements and practices so that somehow in the hands of Jesus, bread becomes more than bread. Bread becomes more than bread. And great awe came upon every soul. And so my prayer for you this morning is that as you offer to the Lord your studying, your preparation, your ministry life, your teaching, and every aspect of your vocation, that you would come to understand your life and the life of the church to which you belong as being blessed and broken and given.